Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If you would turn with your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, and we'll be beginning in verse 15. Tonight we're going to look, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's a turning point in the book. Up till now, it's been describing the judgment that was coming on on God's people because of their sin. Uh, It had described a, a, a plague of locusts that were coming upon them that would strip everything bare and eat all of the all of the plants, leaving them nothing. And, uh, and, and also telling the people that they needed to repent and maybe, maybe God would have mercy. Uh, and and uh, it also warns of an army that was coming uh, upon them. But now uh, we come to this passage and there seems to be a change of tone here. Um, it begins similar to the one that we looked at last week. Um, we, last week we began with this blow the trumpet in Zion that was this warning. This army, was this invading army was coming upon the people. But this time, the, this, this uh, trumpet that is sounding, it, has a, it serves a different purpose. Let's go ahead and look at our text beginning in verse 15 of Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion... Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? When the Lord became, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more Make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, and be, gl- be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear fruit, the fig tree and the vine have give, give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rains for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am the, in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Though your discipline lasts for a little while, your grace, your loving kindness is everlasting. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear tonight. Give me grace as I preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, he begins the same way we, uh, we, he began the text that we looked at last week. Last week, he started out in verse 1 of chapter 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion! Sound an alarm on the holy mountain! It's like the, the sirens were going. The, 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 uh, the warning was coming. The bombers are on their way because this army was coming in. And the, this blowing the trumpet was supposed to warn them that judgment was coming. This army was coming in to destroy. This time, after we ended last week's passage where God was saying, even now, there's time. Repent. Turn to the Lord. And maybe He'll have compassion. And here we see again in this text, blow the trumpet in Zion. But it's a different reason this time. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, instead of saying there's a warning, it's like the dinner bell. Okay? What happens? When, when it's time for dinner, you just imagine the scene. You've got the, the, the triangle there where you, you ring the dinner bell and you're, we're calling everybody to come together. Or it's like the bell that we have up here, uh, here in our building. At the beginning of a service, we can ring that bell and it calls to let everybody know it's time for worship. Well, that's what this trumpet was supposed to be. Blow the trumpet in Zion was saying, everybody gather together, it's time to worship. That's what this blowing the trumpet is. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. It's saying it's time to gather together. Everybody needs to be here. He says, assemble the elders. Okay, so the older people there in the community, particularly probably the older men, the leaders of the community, the congregation, consecrate the con uh, gather the people. Um, I'm sorry, gather the children. So the elders, the older people, also the children, and then he says even the nursing infants. Everybody needs to be there. When the people of God would gather together in the Old Testament, they, they, they really meant it. And they had everybody there together. That's one uh, reason why I think it's, it's good and helpful to have children in the midst of our worship services. Um, sometimes children can be considered by some people to be a kind of an annoyance. We don't want the crying babies and everything like that. But well, you know what? 
In the Old Testament, when they worshipped, everybody was there. And I think that's the way we should do it as well. We should uh, have everybody, a whole family of all generations coming together to worship. And this is so important. You've got to leave. He, he was saying to the people, you've got to leave whatever you're doing and come to be there because it, this is so important. He says, let the bridegroom leave his chamber. Let the bride leave her chamber. Here they are getting ready for a wedding. It's, it's the most important, most, most uh, um, you know, rememberable day that they've been planning on for uh, who knows how long. And it's saying, leave everything where you're at. Leave your chamber while you're preparing for the wedding and come together as a congregation because we need to seek the face of God. Leave whatever you're doing and come to seek the face of God. Then he says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the, the ministers of the Lord weep. More, more trick-or-treaters, but that's okay. Let, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. They're coming together. Everyone needs to be there. You're, they're, it's supposed to be a high priority where they're leaving whatever they're doing and, and meeting together. And, and it says that the priests between the vestibule and the altar, so between the door and where the sacrifices are made, the priests are to be there weeping. Weeping over the, the sins of the people. Weeping over the judgment that God has been bringing over, over, over all this time up, up, up until this point. And then he shifts gears again. He says what the priests and the ministers of the Lord are supposed to pray. I think this, this, is, uh, this is interesting here. He says, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. The first thing we see here is that in their prayer, they're acknowledging, they're recognizing that it's God's people. Spare your people. These people belong to you. They're the ones that you brought up out of Egypt. They're the, they're, and it's praying to God. Remember God. These are your people. These are the sheep of your pasture. They're the ones who you brought up out of Egypt. Who you saved so many times. And, and you made a covenant with. He says... Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. Again, he's saying it's your heritage. As they pray, they're reminding this is a precious thing to God. God had made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with His people on Mount Sinai there with Moses. They were His precious possession. And what the prayer was doing, it was reminding, it was, it was meant from the people's perspective, to remind God, we're your people. I think that's an amazing way to pray. To pray. And he says, Let, uh, make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. A byword, we don't use that word anymore. Um, another way of putting it, a, a proverb, but not like the proverbs we see in the Bible where there are these wise sayings. It would be more like... Um, 
a, a kind of a negative example, uh, some kind of, of a thing in the past where you, you infamous, basically, where you look at that and think, man, those are people that, that God just totally abandoned. And, and, and what, what uh, the prayer is meant to do is say, don't let your people be what everybody else looks at and say, man, God did that. He continues and he says, why should they say among the peoples, that's the Gentiles, the nations, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Verse 17 contains here a prayer that is God-centered. It's saying, God, you saved your people. We belong to you. And your glory is at stake. If you don't step in and save us, then everybody will say, where is their God? And God cares about his reputation. God cares about his faithfulness. God, great is thy faithfulness, right? We sing that. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. He, he is faithful to his covenant promises. And what the people were saying is, if God is so faithful, then he can't let this continue on. He's got to step in and do something about it because his glory is at stake. And this prayer provokes God to action. The sin had provoked God to action before. He brought judgment. He brought judgment by the locusts. He brought judgment by the, uh, the invading army. But now, as the people have repented, they've turned away from their sin and they're calling on the Lord again. God, it says, then the Lord became Jealous for his land. Not jealous in some kind of a, uh, an ungodly way. We think of jealousy as covetousness. We want something that somebody else doesn't have. No, it's more, it, it, it's more in the sense of, uh, of uh, not sharing. <laughs> God would not share his people with anyone else like a husband would not want to share his wife with another man that's the kind of jealousy that god had for his people then the lord became jealous for his land the prayer that was saying don't let your people become a byword don't let your people um be it be said about them where is their god this provokes the Lord to jealousy and he had pity on his people. He had mercy. He had compassion on them. And it says here, the Lord answered. He answered the prayer. The prayer was, don't let this happen. Your name is at stake. Your glory is at stake. And he answered his people and said, behold, I am sending to you grain wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more, no more make you a reproach among the nations. Why is God sending them grain, and wine, and oil? That's because of what chapter 1 was all about. 
Chapter 1 was saying the locusts had came and they ate the whole crop. They ate all the olives, so there was no oil. They ate all the grapes, so there was, no, there was nothing to be able to make wine. There was no grain, so that they couldn't have sacrifices. And here, God is turning the curse on its head. He is saying, I am sending you the very things that I took away in the judgment. I'm sending you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. Sometimes we may feel like we are under the judgment of God. And we might feel like God is withholding something from us and we're guilty. It's because we've sinned. And He longs that we would turn to Him, repent of our sins, look to Him, and He will give us something even better than what we long for. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. People were beginning to say, where is their God? They say, God brought us out of Egypt, but now He's letting you be destroyed by a locust plague? Where is your God? And God tells them, it's no longer going to be that way. You will no longer be a reproach. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. We kind of maybe don't understand what this is talking about unless we know a little bit about the geography and the history and everything like that. Uh, again, we don't know exactly when um, Joel was written. Um, it, there's a kind of a, a range of space. I kind of think it was probably before the Assyrians came in and destroyed the, um, the northern kingdom in Israel. And part of this is because of this right here. I will remove the northerner from you. The northerner probably would have been the nation of Assyria. And uh, the Assyrians came in and destroyed Israel in 721 B.C. Um, and I think uh, whenever he's, he's saying this, it's that army that he was predicting in the earlier part of this chapter. He was saying this army was going to come in. I think that's probably the Assyrians. But instead, uh, he, he's now going to remove them from, uh, remove this, the, the Assyrian army, I think, from them, the northerner. And he's going to drive them away into a parched and desolate land. In the earlier chapters, we were seeing how it was the Assyrians or the, 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 uh, this invading army that came in or the locusts that came in and they made the land of Israel a parched and desolate land. But instead, now God is turning the tables and He's, he's driving off their enemies into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea. His rear guard into the western sea. He's blowing away all of their enemies. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. I think that's God has done great things. We've seen here, there's a, a horn blowing again, a, a trumpet that's blowing, calling the people together to worship. 
calling the people together to assemble and, call, and seek the face of God. We've seen their prayer. that They were, they were praying in a God-centered way, saying, you've got to be faithful. You promised you'd be faithful. And we see God turning His posture towards His people so that He will no longer make them a reproach. And here we see a change in the emotions that, uh, that Joel is calling on the people to have. In the earlier chapters, listen to all these things. He was saying, Awake, you drunkards in sleep. Wail! He's calling for mourning and wailing. He says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. In verse 11, <coughs> Put on sackcloth and lament. And... Um, Uh, Verse 6 in chapter 2, Before them all the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. They They were frightened. But now, Joel is changing the tune again. He's saying, fear not, O land. In the previous chapter, it had said, even the ground mourned. And now here he's saying, fear not, O land. He says, be, re- uh, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. When God has mercy, that is a great thing, and it ought to cause us to rejoice. He says, fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the, trees, the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Before... We had seen in chapter 1 how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. This was what they were experiencing under the judgment of God. But now that they have repented, they can rejoice and even the animals are treated. He says, fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. There's been a turning of the tables. They've gone from being under God's judgment to being under His mercy. Verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion. He talked about the land. He talked about the animals. Now he's talking on the people themselves. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given you the early rain for your vindication he has poured down for your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. He had been withholding the rain. There had been drought. There had been pestilence. There had been judgment by the locusts. It was like a fire had come over and burned everything. But now, God's posture has changed. And they, he sends rain to refresh the ground and to bring forth plants. It says, the, or in the previous verse, it says, the fig tree and the vine will give their full yield. The full yield. Before, it was all shriveled up. And now, it's an overwhelming, over uh, so much you can't even pick it all. 
Verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. Before, we saw in an earlier text where it was saying the threshing floor, the the granaries and things like that, they're just falling apart from disuse. But now, they're going to be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And here's the beautiful part, which I think all of this is is kind of uh, all tied together. Remember before, he was sending the locusts on the people and there was all these different kinds of locusts. He was talking about the cutting locusts and the hopping locusts and all these things that were coming and they were just coming in droves and they were eating. And what one didn't eat, the other ate. And what one didn't eat, the other ate. And what one didn't eat, the other ate. And here he turns it on his head and he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. They had lost it all. They had nothing. They they, they didn't have anything to sacrifice. They, 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 they They didn't have anything to eat. And God says after it's all over, after His discipline has been there for a season, He brings back His discipline when the people repent. And he restores to them the lost years. The reason why I think this is beautiful is I think it's so, it's often been treated uh, to talk about our lives. So many times, our lives seem like maybe it's been a waste. Or that our sin or the poor decisions that we've made have just completely ravaged our lives. Maybe someone who um, waited a long, long time before they ever became a Christian and they felt like the years that they had lived before were all a waste. And here... The promise is, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Or maybe years even after becoming a believer that are spent in struggling with sin, particular sins that, that you just can't have any victory over, it feels like. And here the promise is again, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. What he has taken away with his discipline, he promises to restore abundantly. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Verse uh, 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. They'll forget about the discipline. Instead, all they'll think about is how God has dealt wondrously with them. You know, um, this life is full of trouble and toil and trials and tribulations and all of those things. And, And yet, 
The Bible tells us it's it's like um, um, a light momentary affliction compared to the surpassing glory that will one day be revealed. While we experience suffering and struggling and all kinds of things in this life, He promises that we will eat in plenty and be satisfied. No longer any more pain and sickness and sadness and sin. And then verse 26, And my people shall never again be put to shame. This must be important because he repeats it. Verse 27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Repetition. It means it's important. My people shall never again be put to shame. And so we, we can each probably think of the things that we can feel so much shame over that we've done. Things maybe that we did before we were a Christian and maybe even some things that we've done after we've become a Christian that we feel the shame about. But we know that when the Lord comes, when we have turned to Him, when we have been healed, no longer do we have to feel any shame. He has taken it away. Amen? And He has done all of this. Verse 27. So that you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Why has God done all of this, both the judgment and the salvation? He's done all of that so that His people would know He is the Lord. He is God and there is No one else. He is in the midst of His people and He won't let them get away with their sin. God disciplines us as a loving Father who won't let us get away with our disobedience. And that I am the Lord your God I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. Israel was tempted over all, over all their history up until they were taken away into Babylon. They were always tempted towards idolatry. They were, there, was always, there, were, there were people who were being disobedient, and they'd go off and they'd follow after the, the gods Baal and uh, Chemosh and all these different other gods of the ancient Near East. Yet after they were taken into judgment, taken into Babylon, and they were able to return, they didn't struggle with that anymore. When you read about it in the New Testament, you talk about Israel then, they weren't worshiping idols out on the hills because they'd been cured of that because of God's discipline and His grace. And he says, he, he says, you will know that I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God and there is none else. 
Sometimes He may do the same for us. He may allow us to go through the fires and the struggles and the temptations and the, and the trials of life. All of the things that we go through so that we will know on the other side that He is there with us. And there is no one else besides Him. I think this passage is quite beautiful. We've been all judgment, 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 judgment up until this point. And now, God had pity on His people. The things that were destroyed in the earlier chapters, God restores. It's like Job. It's like the story of Job. Job, he lost his family, he lost his cattle, he lost his property, all those things. What happens there at the end of Job? Everything's restored and even more. And the one who turns to Jesus in faith, the one who trusts that Jesus' death was for them, God promises abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And if we don't receive it in this life, our best life is later. Our best life is in the life to come when He wipes away every tear from every eye. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.